Good afternoon and welcome to the Medical College of Wisconsin's Coffee Conversation with Scientists. I'm your host, Raina Andrews, and for those tuning in for the first time, let me introduce myself. I'm a mother, a children's book author, a public health ambassador, and an engaged community member. I am your host for the 2023 Coffee Conversations with Scientists series. You know, Coffee Conversations is brought to you by the Advancing a Healthier Wisconsin Endowment, which is a statewide nonprofit really working to improve health and advance health equity in Wisconsin. Since early in 2021, we have been sharing the science behind today's most important health topics. Now today, I'm joined by Dr. Carlos Figueroa Castro, who is the Assistant Professor of Infectious Disease at the Medical College of Wisconsin, to learn about the importance of immunization, early detection, and infection prevention. Welcome, Dr. Figueroa Castro. Thank you for the invitation. Yes, yes. So folks out there in the interwebs, we will be covering a great list of questions regarding the triple-demic and immunization. So if you're coughing or sneezing this fall, you'll know how to protect yourself and your loved ones. We have a lot of questions to get to, but the beauty of having a live session is, is that we will call on you at the end. So please get your questions ready. All right, Dr. Figueroa Castro, can you please provide an overview? I've heard this term triple-demic used quite a bit. Can you help us break down what exactly is the triple-demic and how is it caused? Yeah, so uh, the triple-demic uh, concept, I guess it got into vogue um, when uh, we started uh, seeing the, uh, the impact of not only uh, COVID-19 uh, infection, but also when we uh, had some ease up on the uh, restrictions and uh, measures that we have to help control some of the uh, number of cases that uh, incidentally had also an impact on the uh, number of other uh, respiratory infections, namely influenza and, <clears throat> and RSV. And uh, so we, when we had these restrictions, we noticed that also health decreased the number of, in the, of infections for RSV influenza. And then when those measures uh, got phased out, then we saw an upsurge on all those classic uh, respiratory infections. So it was just the conundrum, the conjunction of having COVID, RSV, and influenza. So that's where this triple-demic uh, concept is uh, coming from. You know, we obviously have more than more respiratory viruses out there that you can count by the dozens different viruses that can cause respiratory symptoms. But um, these three is are obviously the most important one for us because they can cause severe disease. Uh, they can uh, cause some difficulties in increasing the number of people requiring uh, visits to the doctor, admissions to the hospital, the more intensive uh, care, and obviously uh, patients can die from uh, severe disease. So that's, that's, I think, a way to encompass the importance of not only looking for COVID-19, but for other viruses that are important uh, from a clinical and public health perspective. Wow. So really the triple-demic is having in the marketplace the viruses of COVID-19, the flu, and RSV. So can you tell me, is that right? Am I understanding yeah, correct. correctly? Correct. So yeah, for the purposes of this uh, conversation, those will be the three uh, main uh, organisms that are uh, important for us. And obviously now that we're in the process of 
having a new season on when respiratory infections in general go up, which, you know, fall and winter, then obviously we're looking very closely what's going to happen with these three infections uh, in the coming months. Mm -hmm. So tis the season where kids are going back to school, they're touching things, they start coughing, they start sneezing, and all seem to be symptoms where they can either be COVID-19, the flu, or RSV. Can you share a bit about what are some of the symptoms, severity, what do we need to know so that we're properly diagnosing things? Yeah, that, that, that can be very tricky at the beginning. You know, many of those respiratory infections have very similar clinical presentations. So especially at the beginning, you might have the malaise, the fatigue, uh, the uh, coughing, the sore throat, runny nose, uh, muscle pains, uh, and, uh, and then after that, you might have something more severe, having coughing, uh, chest discomfort, wheezing, uh, it, but, but it's very difficult to distinguish clinically uh, whether this infection could be related to COVID or it could be related to influenza or RSV or other respiratory virus. Um, so there are some symptoms that we think might be more common in certain infections. You know, obviously, uh, I think a lot of people are already aware that, you know, some patients, uh, for example, with COVID-19 experienced problems with the sense of uh, taste and smell, um, and which we didn't see as much with other respiratory infections. But if the fact that if you don't have those symptoms, that doesn't mean that could be COVID and, and vice versa. So so it's a little bit difficult to distinguish that uh, clinically, frankly. Uh, so that's why we are very, um, very pushing a way to tell patients that if you have any respiratory infection, that uh, seems to be maybe a little bit more than just a common cold, things that maybe doesn't quite resolve on its own very rapidly, that is very important to be diagnosed correctly and uh, because some of those uh, infections, we have antiviral therapy that we can uh, uh, start. And obviously, the sooner we start the treatment, the better. You tend to work uh, better if the diagnosis is done rapidly. So we would like to encourage people to seek um, a medical uh, expertise and having some testing uh, to try to help discern what kind of infection we're dealing with. And obviously there, there is the advantage nowadays of also having home testing, where mm -hmm. you can do some rapid testing uh, in, in trying to figure out if at least this is COVID, not COVID, and obviously in conjunction with uh, your, your health provider. Got it. So you talk about antiviral therapy. What is that? So there are some um, medications that are, um, are, are specific in trying to control these infections, you know, generally speaking, the viruses, but the most part respiratory viruses, and, and thankfully, most of those infections uh, go away on its own. The body most of the time is able to deal with that by different mechanisms that our body is able to do or, or immune system. Uh, but, but there are some other viral infections that we have dedicated uh, medications that can help curb down the multiplication of the viruses by different means. Uh, so for example, for influenza, we we have oseltamivir, which is a very common medication that we've been using for, for some time, obviously. And now with the uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic uh, that uh, was accompanied by a tremendous surge of 
uh, clinical basic and translational research that included uh, treatments that are very specific uh, for COVID-19 infections. So nowadays we have uh, medication that can be given orally for mild to moderate cases uh, and IV medications that can be given for more severe cases. And the idea is to try to uh, affect different parts of what the life cycle of this virus goes through in order to affect the uh, the host. So there are medications that, for example, um, inhibit or slow down the process of, um, of um, multiplying the genetic material of the virus. When the virus is multiplying, 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 it has to also carry some of that genetic material and there's one medication that kind of blocks that, for example, or there are some other medications where uh, we know that after the genetic material of the virus gets translated into a protein, uh, those proteins need to be chopped down in smaller proteins. And there is a specific protein in the virus that does that. So there is another medication that blocks that particular protein that does that. So in the yeah. end, then, the virus uh, doesn't assemble the right way and it doesn't work. Wow. So I don't want this to go over our audience's head. So the way that I'm understanding this is, is this show is about immunizations. When I think about immunizations, I think of vaccinations. What exactly is an immunization? Because it sounds like you're describing how it helps protect your body. Yeah, so immunization is is more of a is a is a larger term than vaccination. Vaccination is a way to promote that immunity. Uh, but it's not the only way to provide uh, protection or immunity to a person. So uh, when we talk about vaccines, we're talking about active immunization, where we give the individual something very similar to what we are trying to protect. So the body produces a similar response mm. to kind of provide that immune response while trying to protect the person from having some of the side effects of having the real infection. So that's a way of immunizing a person. So that's an active process where your body has to uh, look at what the vaccine component is, and then that that triggers uh, some specific immune responses that we, you know, that we take advantage of and the body gets some protection. So that's way of being immunized. That is an active process. Uh, but in some other uh, occasions, uh, or depending on the circumstances, or maybe not having a vaccine for certain conditions, we do what we call a passive immunity, which is actually giving the person the actual antibodies that are very specific to the uh, to the infectious agent that we want to protect. So, for example, in the case of of COVID nineteen, there were some monoclonal antibodies. So we have a molecule that is able to detect uh, a specific piece in the surface of the virus that helps tell the, the body say, look, this is not, this doesn't belong here. And, uh, but, it, but it's something that doesn't last forever. It, it has that lifespan, uh, but the effect is, you know, is right there. You're just doing, giving the antibodies that uh, that with the vaccine you're supposed to form on your own. But in the end, it's immunization. It's just a different mechanism. Got it. So for the flu, I always see whenever I go to the pharmacy, mm -hmm. get your flu shot, get your flu shot. So that's a new 
so blue, there are different strands that come out, kind of like COVID, there are different strands. And so when they're promoting, hey, you should get your booster, it's because there's a new variant. So you need to now protect yourself from this new variant. Correct. Can you share more about um, about these these immunizations or these vaccinations and why they're so important to protect ourselves? Yeah. So I mean, obviously, we we have to uh, maybe go back a little bit and 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 talk a little bit why we uh, recommend uh, different vaccines uh, through the season. So for influenza, for example, that it's a it's a very robust. Um, public health system where we had really good monitoring of what kind of uh, strains or variants that are circulating in the community. Uh, and, and for us, that's very important because based on that information that we collect from different places around the country and around the world, that's how uh, they can determine what kinds of specific vaccines get into that product. So when you when we talk about the flu vaccine, uh, you're actually getting vaccines, you're getting uh, three different compounds to try to cover for different strains in that vaccine. It could be three or four components. And that combination is uh, driven by what is circulating in the community. And for influenza, that has been known for 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 decades that uh, surveillance is is very robust and uh, every year then when is the time to uh, decide what to put on that vaccine then is based on that information and then when 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 they decide hey we need to cover this this and this because those are the most common virus circulating in the community then that gets back get down to manufacturing and all that and that's how these vaccines get uh, get concocted in a way. Um, so I think the, the the situation for influenza is again very robust, very well known because the, that virus mutates, the genetic material changes, and sometimes the changes are very small, so there's not a lot of variability. But sometimes the changes are very large, up to the point that not a lot of people in the community might have that protection from previous infections. And, and it's like starting like not having any immunity at all. So that's when we get concerned about, for example, a novel case of uh, influenza that might have a potential for cause a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, for this influenza vaccination, again, the, we design what kinds of strains to cover based on what we are able to monitor. Now, similarly for COVID-19, we have a very similar situation where there is a lot of research in determining what kind of variants, what kind of changes have been, we have seen in this virus. So it's just a a different way to know how these viruses evolve through time by natural mechanisms or, uh, and and based on that, then the vaccine gets, gets designed. So in, in this situation, for example, again, you remember, you know, after we, we started having all these issues with the pandemic since uh, early 2020, uh, we have seen different names uh, showing up in the news, like uh, Delta mm-hmm. and Omicron and yeah. all that, which are kind of like this, maybe catchier names uh, for some different variants. You know, obviously there is a nomenclature uh, for scientists to to determine the changes, which family of viruses we're talking about, but but I think for 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 the rest, you know, for for the common person, maybe a little bit easier to say it's Omicron is that so um, so you probably that's what you have seen on the news. So that vaccine creation, 
-hmm. is based on, on, on what is circulating in the community. So there's a new variant um, for COVID-19. What is, what is this new variant called? So this, uh, this variant is uh, kind of descendant from what we call Omicron. Okay. And uh, there have been some small changes in, in, in that variant. So, so there are different names uh, that uh, based on what is circulating. So it's, uh, it's EG5 and BA2.86. So again, those names may be not as catchy as saying Omicron. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but those are kind of the two variants that we have seen are kind of creeping up and becoming the most common uh, variants out there that are, that are causing disease in the community. And thankfully, uh, the vaccine for this season, uh, we think that it has good coverage against the circulate, those circulating strains. So that's, that's great for my next question. So can you explain the current recommendations regarding the COVID-19 booster shots, especially in the context of a potential triple-demic? Like who should really consider getting a booster? Yeah, so I, I mean, in general, I mean, uh, er, er, you know, the, there should be uh, um, a, a person needs to get uh, the COVID vaccine vaccination. Obviously, we we probably are more pushy in recommending that to patients who we think that are at a higher risk of having severe disease mm -hmm. uh, for COVID nineteen infection. Again, very similar recommendations for influenza and RSV, particularly. But uh, but in, in principle, we want uh, people to get uh, vaccinated if uh, possible. Um, and um, with this new booster, which uh, not sure it necessarily is a great word to to imply what we need to be doing here. Not sure it may be a catch up or or just a seasonal COVID-19 shot. I think it would probably be a better way to to describe it. Um, it's basically a way to, to kind of keep up with what is going on in the community. So uh, the recommendations on whether to get one shot or two shots, uh, those are very dependent on whether you have received a vaccine for COVID-19 before or not, or whether you are a, a person who have some problems with their immune system. So there are some particularities out there uh, that tells you when to receive one shot or two shots, and it's very dependent on the kind of product that you have received in the past. So remember that there are different vaccines out there for um, for COVID-19, and depending on the product, there are also some, some minor variations in how to do this catch-up or boostering, if you want to call it that way. And, and again, that information, obviously, uh, you know, the, your healthcare provider should be able to Get that information. The health departments, the Centers for Disease Control has an excellent documentation on on how to do that catch up uh, immunization. So it should be pretty easy for your for having a discussion with your healthcare provider. Mm -hmm. I I just want to ask one more question before we turn it over to our audience. And I'm wondering, you know, what measures can people take to reduce their risk of contracting or really even spreading these respiratory infections, and in high risk areas like airports, schools, healthcare facilities crowded gatherings in the fall, should we automatically go back? Well, we should always be washing our hands, but should we return to wearing masks? Yeah, that's uh, that's kind of an interesting question, I, I think. So again, obviously vaccination is a key component in trying to protect you from, from infection. Obviously uh, the, the vaccination has also a uh, an effect on the population. If we decrease the number of cases or severe cases, uh, we should expect also some decrease in the level of transmission, 
and and obviously for us as healthcare providers as well, the, you know, uh, it might be a little bit easier to uh, deal with a surge of infection. You know, that was one of the big problems that we have uh, in the last couple of uh, seasons where the healthcare system got into a lot of stress because of a surge in cases. So that's one, one effect of that. So in addition to the vaccination, obviously, like you said, the hand washing is very important. Um, if you you can implement some sort of cough etiquette, so you're coughing, obviously you want to cover your face or cover with your elbow. Um, the use of the mask, obviously, you know, there's a lot of uh, not necessarily that, you know, some discussions about uh, the, the use. I think they are effective in decreasing the transmission if you have infection and also to protect yourself from other people having um, so if you are a person who are at a higher risk of infection, particularly, let's say you have an organ transplantation or you have problems with uh, that you're on dialysis or, or, or things along those lines, uh, you know, I think using a mask, uh, if you go to do your groceries or you feel that you're going to end up in a situation where there might be some some people around you, like you said, maybe going to an airport or something like that. I think a mask is a good measure to, to, to consider. Um, and, 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 and again, obviously it should be a decision that should be respected um, as well. Um, so I think it's just an extra layer of protection, especially if you are an individual that if you get sick, you can get into a lot of trouble. So I, I think that brings up a really good, good, good point earlier on you said that you know if you're feeling symptomatic it's almost like a process of elimination it's a good job for you to take a COVID test I, now i now want to turn it over to some of the questions from our audience and one of the questions is is can i still use the COVID home test that i have at my home from last year do they expire so that's kind of interesting because i had the same situation actually last week uh, so i had a <laughs> yeah i was having a, a cold and um and I was obviously wondering if that was maybe uh, COVID-19. And um, the we were like kind of looking, you know, I was looking, you know, we had some of the tests that were given by, you know, the mm -hmm. uh, the government when they started uh, doing it. And they're going to do that again, actually. Uh, so you're going to see that if you want, you're interested, you can actually ask for a free test again. Uh, but yeah, the, the test was expired. So, um, so obviously, you know, ideally you want to follow the manufacturer rules uh, and make sure that that test is is valid. You know, uh, in my case, it was about seven days, so you kind of wonder if it still works, doesn't work. I I think the safest approach is if it's if it's out of the date, then you have to use a new one. That will be the safest step. Mm -hmm. Do you have any resources on maybe when or or where people can get tests? Is it just at the regular grocery store they should be available? So again, the the government uh, they decided to um, uh, to distribute uh, COVID kits to households, and I think they're planning to do that again uh, for this season. Uh, some of those kits are also available in regular, um, you know, CVS, Walgreens uh, uh, facilities uh, uh, like that. And there's also there's going to be some interesting developments in maybe having. Uh, kids not only to test for COVID-19, but also for influenza. There's actually a kid that tests for COVID and, and flu. And RSV, uh, not sure there will be much of a push to have one, but if you want to get tested for RSV, that's something that you have to touch base with your healthcare provider. So it might come in the future, but but I think the priority will be for 
COVID-19 and flu uh, home testing. Got it. Another question from one of our viewers is, I've heard you should wait until later in flu season to get a vaccination so that you're getting the latest formulation for the current virus. Is there any truth to that recommendation? Yeah, so um, so obviously there was kind of a gap, for example, like around uh, summer, early fall, where we know that this uh, new shot was going to come. And the other one, the bivalent one, was still kind of available. So you were kind of in the, like, uh, should I get the old one or the new one? Mm-hmm. Um, I I think if, uh, and, and obviously now it's a different situation. We know that it's coming and it's going to be distributed. So if you need one shot, I will just go ahead and get this one. Um, if you would have asked me that question, let's say three, four months ago, I will say, if you need to get some protection, get the bivalent and... Uh, if you had a kind of a recent infection, I will say maybe it's okay to wait because you probably had some 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 immunity from that infection until you get this new shot. Uh, but right now that we have this uh, this product coming, I will just go ahead and get this one. Um, now there are some other interesting um, discussion on what kind of what is the correct timing and when yeah. to get the shot. Mm-hmm. And that's, that goes back to try to figure it out when is going to be the peak of a respiratory season, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we think about maybe five, six months starting in September. So there's always been whether it's okay to maybe wait a little bit longer. So if I, if it maybe gets late, maybe I'm okay. Or if maybe if I get it too early, uh, maybe by the end of the season, I might not be necessarily that covered. Uh my personal opinion, um, I think uh, trying to time when that peak is going to come is very tricky. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go and look at the historical data on when are the peaks on when the influenza transmission, for example, has happened, which is a, there's a lot of throw of data uh, for many years back. And, and you can see that there's a lot of variability when that peak is going to come. So Frankly, I will suggest just to get it now. It's already October. I think this is the perfect time to get it to get it done uh, mm-hmm. instead of maybe trying to get it early because one, maybe the pick is going to come back earlier or two, maybe you try to time it and then you forget it and then you don't get the shot at all. Um, so if you can get it, I will just go ahead and do it. Okay. So there is some, not there is a little truth to that. So maybe not, you know, later into the flu season, but protecting yourself when when you're when you're really well into the season. Yeah, so- and, uh, yeah, I know people try to, you know, and, and we also have the same discussions, for example, when we we talk about the requirements for influenza vaccination for healthcare providers when to get that started. And we always have that discussion uh throughout the years. There's always figure it out if maybe giving it early, quote unquote early, maybe if if the peak is late, maybe your your immunization might have waned it. Uh, but trying to predict that is is very tricky, very mm-hmm. tricky. So mm-hmm. I think October, I mean, we're basically in October right now. So I, I will not wait to to try to time that. Okay. So is this considered like maybe the middle of our flu season or there's still the beginning? I think we're just getting started at this point, though. Okay. So uh, so again, I will say September, October, November. I mean, we, we, we have seen uh, kind of late, even, even March, uh, some transmission. Uh, so again, I will, I will not try to time that because I think you'll, 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 you'll fail most likely. Uh, so, um, so I will just go ahead and get it done. Mm-hmm. So I have one more question for our audience, and that is um, there seems to be a growing amount of people who are afraid of vaccinations. 
When educating patients who are fearful of vaccines, how do you help them overcome their fears? Yeah, and no, obviously it's, it's uh, you know, I mean, sadly it's become a touchy subject and, and I mean, that can be a full conversation right there. But um, I think, um, you know, we, we can talk about all the scientific data. We know that it's uh, effective in, in, in decreasing the chances of you getting very sick. We know that it's very good in decreasing the chances of you dying from, from disease. Mm -hmm. uh, there is some effect in transmission, maybe not as good as we want it to be, but I think there's a good effect. So I, I can talk about that, all the data, and mm -hmm. uh, but, but, but I have to also have to recognize that there is an emotional component uh, to this. There is a cultural component, there is a social component. Um, so I think when, when, when we have these conversations on why the vaccine is a good thing, uh, it's not only the science behind, but I think uh, it's, it's good to always try to have a personal approach on why there might be some uh, concerns about vaccine. And again, I think the first thing that I have to, uh, that we have to acknowledge that is always, obviously there were newer compounds, uh, obviously there's, there's always a concern. And I think it's completely understandable to have certain concerns with any new product though. Mm -hmm. um, but we have been using this for some time already. And I think the, the proof that we have on safety, I think the record is very good. So I think that part, I, I think it's it's maybe less, uh, less of a situation. Um, I think you have to be very um, empath very empathic with patients to try to maybe understand where they're coming because um, saying no to vaccines is, is a very broad brush. Uh, some patients are into maybe the doubt. And, mm -hmm. and I think if you're very empathetic and understanding where they're coming from, mm -hmm. I think many of those uh, patients and parents, uh, I think in the end, they might feel more comfortable talking to a healthcare provider, somebody that giving some reassurance and, and understanding where they're, they're coming from. So and again, I, I give you I give you some examples. You know, if you have uh, a person, a relative that might have had a bad reaction to a vaccine, I mean, it's something that obviously that you have to acknowledge. You know, you can't say that's not. Possible. I mean, it, we know that there are some reports out there, um, but but it's difficult to dissociate that anecdote or that case versus all the humongous number of patients who have received these vaccines and they have had no problems that they have benefited tremendously from those from those vaccines. Mm -hmm. So in the spirit of education, what are some resources that our audience can maybe leverage to to, to really find out the 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 COVID-19 numbers? Um, what are some trusted websites that you would recommend? Yeah, I, I will start with, uh, you know, trying to understand a little bit of the local situation, which is obviously what you are kind of more maybe, uh, you know, interested in a way, you know. So I will start with the, with the Wisconsin uh, Health Department. Uh, they have excellent data on what's the current situation for influenza for COVID-19. There are some national entities that do that, like the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Um, and uh, during the pandemic, there were some other uh, websites that uh, had an excellent uh, way to monitor uh, transmission and number of cases. Uh, I think in general, knowing that maybe we have been somewhat lucky that this variant is maybe not as bad as it was with the Delta and some other before. Uh, I think the, uh, the the minutia of getting every single case maybe that has passed a little bit. 
but I think you know you have the dashboard uh, from uh, John Hopkins uh, for COVID nineteen. Uh, some newspapers like uh, you know, like New York Times, for example, ha had an excellent uh, website uh, tracking the data, which uh, they don't do that anymore. But there, that historical data you can you can look into it. So, so I will start with the health department, and obviously, Wisconsin Health Department for our purposes would be my first go-to uh, source of information for knowing uh, what's happening in the community. You know, we we had seen maybe some upsurge of cases of COVID, of cases getting admitted to the hospital. That may have been maybe a little bit of a downtick, but you know, we're maybe kind of looking into what's going to happen later on when the when winter comes and and we are kind of an, at home and and maybe you know closer proximity. So so it will be very important and also knowing those numbers uh, might have some implications on um, you know do we need to for example for hospitals do we need to implement masking again for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so so it will be very important for us also to track those those numbers. Wonderful. And well, with that, I want to thank you, Dr. Figaro Castro, for joining us today. We appreciate you taking the time to really talk to us about this very important topic. So thank you. My pleasure. Yes. And folks, if we didn't get to your questions, we're so sorry, but please feel free to send us your questions or your notes to conversations at mcw.edu. I hope you all join us next month for a virtual coffee break and a conversation with the scientists. Have a good day. The Medical College of Wisconsin's Coffee Conversations with Scientists is sponsored by the Advancing a Healthier Wisconsin Endowment. Coffee Conversations with Scientists occur monthly as Facebook Live events and are produced by the Medical College of Wisconsin. We hope you join us next month for another virtual coffee break and a conversation with a scientist.